This is New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, Black Mamba Boy and how he got his name. She sat there under this acacia tree and a black mamba snake came and slithered over her stomach, but it didn't do her any harm and then slithered away. The story of the war you've never heard about. You know what? We're imperialists too, and we're going to take over the Philippines, even if we have to kill a half a million Filipinos to do it. Immigration and a murder, the true tale of an Asian-American family. Everything has two sides, you know, the dark side and the light side. And uh, I think what I'm trying to do is show the darker side of the American dream. And President Obama and the politics of comedy. He's the only black man I know that's working right now. (laughs) And the other thing he is, one of the only people in this country who aren't angry. All that and more coming up on New America Now. In the story of the lives of immigrants, the journey away from the homeland is itself a significant component. Why did they leave home and how did they do it? For those who were lucky, it was a choice. But for most immigrants, it wasn't. Author Nadifa Mohammed is herself an immigrant to the United Kingdom from Somalia. And her award-winning first novel, Black Mamba Boy, is about another immigrant, a young boy named Jama, a Somali orphan who travels from Yemen and ultimately ends up in the United Kingdom. He's based on her father. She joins us today to discuss her book and its story of immigration. Welcome to the show, Nadifa. Thank you. So let's start off with a handle on the plot. What is your book about? The book follows father's childhood, basically, in East Africa and also in the Middle East and how he left his homeland of Somali, Somalia, Somaliland as it was known at the time, to make a, a life for himself as a sailor, as a soldier at one point, as a farmer, but eventually he came to the UK as a sailor. So, so this is something of a personal story. It's not exactly fiction. You based it on stories that you heard about your father's life. Absolutely. It started actually as a biography of him. Um, but that quickly, the, the limits of our biography in the sense of how I could write one and also his emotional life and his personal relationships, as a biography, I really didn't feel like I could get a handle on those. So I made it into a novel. But the facts are very, very closely based on his real life. It, it feels like your novel's not only the telling of a story, the, your father's story, but an attempt to sort of invite the rest of the world into Africa, a continent that's very much misunderstood. What did you want people to know about Africa? I think that there, is, there are so many misconceptions. So I was learning a lot writing it, and I wanted to pass some of that new knowledge on. I wanted people to know how old um, Somalia is as a, as a country, as a civilization. They were trading with the Greeks and the Persians and the Chinese, and I wanted them to know that the colonial period wasn't you know, a time of peace and development, as many people would have you think. It was actually a very upside-down kind of, you know, for people like my grandmother and um, my father as well, it turned over their way of life. It turned it upside-down. And it brought opportunities, but it also brought despair and loss and violence. What was it like writing this book, knowing that it had so much personal uh, value to you? I think I probably wouldn't have been able to write a book that didn't have this much personal value to me. 
I didn't have any ambition to become a writer. I didn't have any experience as a writer. I didn't do any MA courses or anything like that. So it was just a story keeping me going. It took four and a half years to, to finish, and I nearly just kind of just dropped it at, at, on, at certain times because I just thought it was not going anywhere. But the fact that it was my father's story, the fact that people would never read a story like this about him or about anyone like him, it was, it was a unique opportunity to get that down. So I think it was only this story that could have got me on that road of becoming a writer. And now I'm on that road and I won't come off it. But it was, it was this story and it's, it's, it's intimacy to my own life that made it important to tell. Well, tell us about the title of your book. Why is it called Black Mamba Boy? It's called Black Mamba Boy because it was a translation, it is a translation of my father's nickname. His real name was Jama, but he's never really known by anyone as Jama. His um, his nickname was God, which in Somali means Black Mamba, and it was given to him by his mother because as she was pregnant, um, we're expecting him, it just I think maybe she was 17 years old. She sat down in the desert waiting for her legs basically stopped being so painful so she could pick herself up and carry on with the caravan. She sat there under this acacia tree and a black mamba snake, which is incredibly venomous and incredibly violent, aggressive, came and slithered over her stomach as she was ready to die. She thought that was the end for her, but it didn't do her any harm and then slithered away. So she took that as a, as a sign of something, as a sign of this child's specialness. Is, is that a real story or is that something you put in your novel? Absolutely, yeah. It was, it's real. It's real and um, it's in the story and it's one of the very first things my father told me because it's obvious that he's never known by any, all his friends, everyone, his neighbours call him God, which is Black Mamba. How are you spelling that? It sounds like you're saying God as in English God. <laughs> it's God. So in Somali, it's G-O-O-D-E. But if I was using English, if I was to spell it in English, it'd probably be God, which is G-U-U-D-E. Okay, fascinating. Well, let's have you read a little bit from Black Mamba Boy so we can get a sense of your main character, Jama, who's based on your father, and just sort of a sense of, of how this book moves along. Okay. Issa became a small ally against the compound women. She slept in the same room as Juno and Jama and joined in on their late-night conversations. I used to sleep right there, next to Ambaro, where you are now, Jama, plucking our hair, tickling each other. That's right, that's right, encouraged Juno. Juno would throw a slipper at us to quieten our laughter. They had no sense of time. Do you remember, Auntie, how she would read our palms, telling us all kinds of things, how many men we would marry, how many children we'd have? She scared the other girls with that talk. Jama sat up on his elbows and listened attentively to the women. It's because she had the inner eye, and she didn't soften or hide what she saw. I saw it in her from an early age. I watched her read the future in shells when she was not yet five. Grown men would come and ask her to tell them their fate. Did she tell you all this, Jama? Juno asked. Jama scanned his memory. She only told me that I had been born of the protection of all the saints and that a black mamba had blessed me while I was in her stomach. That is all true. You had a very auspicious birth. Every Kahin and astrologer envied your signs. Even Venus appeared the night you were born. Jamat rested his head on his arm and sighed loudly. If only he could meet his father, he would believe all of their fanciful words.
you touch on a lot of African stereotypes almost. You talk about, it seems like voodoo and sort of strange spiritual things that maybe people outside of Africa don't understand. Do you worry that you've played on those stereotypes? Not at all. I think maybe as an outsider, I was also, because I've not been brought up in Somalia. I I left there when I was four years old. So in a way, I had the same kind of reaction of thinking, I don't want people to think that Africa's, you know, this kind of superstitious place. But this was their religion. You know, it's something you can't ignore. You can't denigrate it by pretending it's not there or by editing around it. My grandmother was a fortune teller. She did believe that this snake blessed her child and that the stars and everything else around her was telling her that this child was unique and had a special fate. And that belief had an effect on my father. It gave him a strength that he probably wouldn't have been able to find from any other source because the rest of the world was telling him he was no good, that he was, he was worth nothing. So it's not superstition. It was their belief, and it was, it's a belief that's lasted thousands of years. And I think... In the West, we get this picture of voodoo as, you know, just these dead-eyed people walking with their arms in front of them and trying to bite other people, but that's absolutely nothing to do with what they believed. It's, it's to do with having, believing that a snake can have a spirit and a tree can have a spirit and the whole world is around, alive around you and that when you die, your spirit can also return. You know, it's a really magical and beautiful belief and I don't think that it should be swept away and... I got over those kind of preconceptions, and they're almost like fears as well of African beliefs. I think they've been given a second-class status in comparison to Islam and Christianity and these other bigger religions. You also touch on Islam, though, as well. You touch on other religions because the Africa that your character moves around in, the Africa that your father moved around in, is full of different religions. Absolutely. So the, the the religion of my grandmother is Islam, but it's Islam that's affected and influenced by these thousand-year-old beliefs, more than thousand-year-old beliefs. So he goes from Somali, which is Muslim, to Yemen, which is a different type of Muslim, yet again. Then he returns to Africa, and he lives in Eritrea with a, with a group of people called the Kunama, who are matriarchal. They believe in a goddess called Anna. There's a massive variation. You only have to go a few miles to, to be immersed in a completely different culture and re- religion and, and a society. So it's a melting pot. It's a place where Africa meets Asia. But I don't think the Asian influence should be prioritized over the African influence. They're both there. What are the biggest misconceptions that you feel that non-Africans have about Africa and Africans? <sighs> That's a big question. Um... There are so many, <laughs> so many. I think it's interesting when I go to Somalia and I speak to my friends back in London, they really do think of it as, a, as another planet. So they don't know if there's houses. They don't know if there's electricity. They don't know if there's schools. It's basically a blank slate. I could tell them anything and they would probably believe it. But they don't understand how normal life for most Africans is. We, we get to see Africa at its worst when there's genocide, when there's famine, when there's a coup, something out of the ordinary happens and that's when our attention is brought to it. The rest of the time when people go to school, you know, they apply for jobs, they maybe get those jobs, don't get them. It's it's just ordinary life and it's it's heavily they're they're much more open, I think. My my cousins in Somali can speak French, they speak Italian, they speak Russian, they speak Arabic. They're much more open to the rest of the world, but the world is not open to them. They're they're seen as poor and black and that's it. That's the sum total I think of people's knowledge of who they are. 
You use the phrase, the world is not open to them. That kind of applies to immigration in some ways, doesn't it? Your, your character was an immigrant, you Absolutely. were an immigrant. Yes, and the way my father was an immigrant is very different to the way to now. He came to England in 1947 as part of, he was, a, he was a subject of the British Empire. So legally, he had the right to move from Somalia to England. Now that doesn't exist. Now if you're a Somali, your passport doesn't mean anything. So you're basically left with only legal forms of immigration. And Somalis have gone to every country you can imagine, from Finland to Australia, as refugees. Basically, I think the world is not open in the sense that they are unwelcome. They are unwelcome to come. There are certain countries that did welcome Somali refugees, but that's now stopped. So they have to force their way into the world. The world does not accept them easily. Well, Nadifa, Black Mamba Boy, your first novel, has won awards and it's a spectacular debut. We look forward to your upcoming books and future books. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Shireen. Nadifa Muhammad is the author of Black Mamba Boy. You're listening to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. It's likely that you've never even heard of the Philippine-American War. It's not a part of the American education curriculum as you make your way through school, Other wars take precedence there, and it's not exactly mentioned regularly in the mainstream media. But it happened, and it had real consequences for a Philippine nation that was trying to loosen the grips of one colonial power, only to fall into the grip of another. Independent filmmaker John Sayles was so moved by the stories he'd read of this war he'd never heard of that he felt compelled to make a film about it. Amigo is not a documentary. And it is not a film about the front lines of war. It is a war film about the microcosm of a village caught in the midst of a colonial relay and massive historic change. Welcome to the show, John. Nice to be here. So tell us what your film is about. Amigo is set in 1900 during the Philippine-American War, a conflict that most people don't know anything about, uh, both in the the Philippines and the United States. Um, And the amigo of the title is the the Cabeza de Barrio, the the mayor of a little village um, that has recently been uh, garrisoned by American soldiers who are chasing the Philippine army north. And uh, he has to deal with the American soldiers kind of breathing down his neck, but also the fact that his brother is the leader of the local guerrilla unit who are still fighting against those American soldiers. So he's kind of behind a rock in a, uh, a hard place. So why did you make this film? You know, I, I came across this history while I was doing research for an uh, earlier novel I, I wrote called Los Gusanos, and I've, I've since written another novel called A Moment in the Sun, which, which deals with it more fully. Um, I... I found in, in this history this surprising thing that within a few months, uh, somehow Americans went from thinking of themselves as the champions of liberty who would go down to Cuba and risk their lives to free the Cuban people from the yoke of you know Spanish imperialism 
to saying, you know what, we're imperialists too, and we're going to take over the Philippines, even if we have to kill a half a million Filipinos to do it. Would you say that this was maybe the turning point in American war history, where Americans, instead of perhaps seeing themselves as liberators, perhaps then started seeing themselves as imperialists? Yeah, I would say not not so much in our behavior in that we certainly had, uh, you know, pushed Indian nations across the map and invaded Mexico before, but in the way that we thought of ourselves, uh, we were involved in the, the Boxer Rebellion in China at this time, and uh, there were people who were card-carrying, proud to call themselves imperialists, um, and it was very racially based. I mean, uh, so much of it was about... Uh, we're white Christians and they're not, so how could they possibly run their own country without us? Well, let's talk about race because your film touches on it quite a bit. There's the race issues between the the white man, and the Americans, and the Filipinos, uh, and then there's also the issues between the Spanish friar uh, and the Americans and the Spanish friar and the Filipinos. Tell us, Tell us about that dynamic that you portray in your film. One thing I think that an audience member watching Amigo can get, which is unusual in a film, is the experience of being in many, many different camps. Uh, About half the movies in English, uh, hanging out with the American soldiers, about half is in Tagalog, uh, hanging out with both the Filipino villagers and the guerrillas. But there's also a Spanish priest who is the only person who can speak both of those languages and uh, interpret, although he has his own agenda, so he often doesn't interpret accurately. And there's even a, a couple of uh, Chinese coolie workers who speak Cantonese. Each one of those uh, groups um, has their own prejudices, based on ignorance mostly, and, and sometimes advantage about the other groups. And, and so the audience member gets to see, oh my God, not one of these characters knows what I do, and they're all walking into some terrible confrontation, which if they would, could communicate with each other and, and give up some of their prejudices, uh, could be avoided. And, and speaking of language and communication and linguistics, the, the title of your film, Amigo, is, is, is rather controversial, isn't it? Because it's a Spanish word. It's not a word that's used in Tagalog, the Philippine language. Why did you call yeah, your it, film that way? It's one of the few words that uh, the Filipinos and the Americans had in common, but it wasn't either of their words. Um, you know, it was one of the few words that they understood of Spanish if they weren't educated Filipinos, um, because there was an educated illustrado class in the Philippines who, who spoke and wrote in, in Spanish. Um, and many of the American soldiers had been stationed in the American Southwest and, and spoke a little border Spanish. So it was a word that they could kind of agree on, and very often Filipinos, when they were surrendering, would throw their hands up and, and go, amigo, amigo. Um, but in the, in the research that I did, uh, I kept running into this phrase, the good amigos and the bad amigos. And it's hard to keep them you know, straight, which, which are which. So we don't, we don't learn a great deal about uh, Philippine-American war in American schools and high schools, and your film centers around that. It's not necessarily about the war, but it's about what the war does to people. Why do you think that we aren't taught so much about this war, or or anything at all, in fact, in, in most think, American schools? 
Yeah, I think in the case of uh, the Philippines, people weren't taught it because uh, Americans took over their educational system and did some wonderful things, but they also took over the history and really didn't want to deal with this this hard part of it. They wanted the Filipinos to think of them as saviors, not invaders. Uh, in the United States, I really think it is is because that we tried imperialism, we tried taking over countries, we, we made Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines territories, and didn't really like that self-image. We really haven't done that. You know, there's been certainly cultural imperialism, and, and we've been quite a bit of violating other people's, uh, you know, uh, airspace and ground space and whatever in the name of whatever war we're pursuing. But this idea that we're going to take over somebody else's country and make them a satellite or a territory, it didn't sit well with Americans. We tried it for a very short time, and we're kind of glad to get out of it in the case of the Philippines. But how does that translate into the, into the American educational system? I mean, I'm talking about how we are not taught about this war. I mean, how does that happen, in your opinion? I, I think two things. One is that it, it, um, historians and, and, and uh, you know, professors of history will come to you and say there's a lot of pressure to be celebratory, especially on the high school level, um, to only tell, teach the, the history the, the way that, you know, everybody feels good about themselves. And so a lot of our history is whitewashed to a certain extent. Um, but, but also, I think, because the next war always eclipses the last war. Uh, World War II um, kind of eclipsed the Spanish Civil War. We don't know much about that. And I think World War I kind of eclipsed this war. This was, as Teddy Roosevelt said, this, of the Spanish-American War, a splendid little war. It didn't last that long in the public imagination, uh, even though the impact on the Philippines lasted for a good 20 years, and the shooting didn't stop for that long. What do you think are the repercussions of sort of whitewashing history, as you say, uh, for students of American history? I think one of the repercussions of whitewashing, and it, and it gets whitewashed as it's happened as well as in retrospect, uh, is that people are uninformed and get used to preferring to be uninformed. And therefore, we don't make very good decisions. We don't really uh, know enough about people before we get into a war with them. We don't know enough about their history and culture. We don't know enough about even the terrain. Uh, William McKinley probably didn't know where the Philippines was when he first, you know, uh, made war on Spain. Um, and so those decisions tend to be emotional and based on black and white uh, logic when it's usually a very, very complex situation. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, it's hard to know who you are without knowing where you came from. And, and for Filipinos, uh, Amigo is a movie about where they came from and where their history came from and how they evolved as a nation. And it's kind of been stolen from them. Listening to you talk about this, this Philippine-American war and, and discuss your film, it, it almost feels like you could be talking about any number of the wars that the U.S. is involved in right now. Is that is that an intention that you had that you maybe you wanted know, to make a parallel there? It, it's not why I made the movie, but it's unavoidable. Um, you know, uh, whenever you occupy another country and really don't understand the culture, uh, whenever you occupy the country and you take over certain territory and tell the the people in authority there, okay, you're working for us now and keep your people in line, 
you're going to have these situations. I, I was very struck doing the research for this period. I kept running into this phrase, we have to win their hearts and minds, which I had only associated with Vietnam. And here was Teddy Roosevelt saying it at the beginning of the 1900s. Uh, and then I traced it back to the Bible. Um, so th these are situations that recur and recur and recur, and they're complex situations. And uh, the other thing that it re recurs, unfortunately, is that when governments or people in power want to sell a war, they find a way to simplify that, that situation and make it seem black and white and, and dehumanize the people who they want to be seen as the enemy. You, you mentioned a lot about the humanity of the different sides in this conflict. What were you trying to tell us about humanity in war? Well, I think that it, it continues, for one thing, uh, but that war is one of the things that pushes us to act in less human ways. Um, human beings are complex creatures. They're, they're, they're capable of all kinds of behavior, and some of it's pretty good behavior. War really doesn't encourage the best of behavior out of human beings. War, you know, in, in, in Amigo, you end up with uh, a bunch of American soldiers executing somebody, and none of them want to be there doing that thing, but they're going to do it anyway because they're in the middle of a war. And, and their uh, commander has told them to do it. Yeah, and, and because uh, they've just been ambushed by the enemy, um, and because it's a war. Um, and, and all those other things that, that can happen between people who don't even speak the same language to discover who the other person is, are not are not really encouraged in a war, um, and and it's you know it's it's one of the problems in human history is that uh, the people who want there to be conflict will will do whatever they can to polarize human beings and get them to hate each other again, even if they've been living you know if you look at places like the former Yugoslavia or an island like Crete where there are people of different religions and, and ethnicities and nationalities living side by side, they do it very successfully for a while. And then usually there are people who it's not to their advantage, and so they fan up the old hatreds. You, you said that you've made this film about the Philippine-American War to, to sort of fill in the information gap that's missing in, in this country in particular uh, on that issue. Are, would you say that you're more opposed to the wars that are going on right now um, with the United States or to the fact that the information gap is there, that the media isn't covering the issues, that, that things are being whitewashed? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not a pacifist. I, I have seen situations in my own lifetime and certainly know of historical situations where people are put in a position where uh, to survive, they have to fight. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's true. However, I think if you're going to do that, if you're going to shoot at somebody and be shot at somebody, you better know what it's about. Um, if you're going to, you know, if we're going to torture people, it should be televised. You know, wow. everybody has to deal with I don't want anything done in my name that I wouldn't want to do myself, that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. And I think too many Americans, I think too many people in the world, there's this cognitive dissonance. They don't want to know what's going on so they can think well of themselves. They don't want to know what slavery is because their fortune comes from slavery. They don't want to know you know, the, the nasty parts of a war because it's just easier not to. 
Um, and, and I think that that's one of the things that allows stupid wars to continue to be waged. John Sales, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your new film, Amigo, about the Philippine-American War. Thank you. Independent filmmaker John Sales' new film is Amigo, about the Philippine-American War. Listening to New America Now, dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. first film you ever make is the one that has most of you in it. The pain, the happiness, the nostalgic bits of memory that you were never able to let go. For director Doris Young, her feature film, Motherland, has an obvious connection to herself. She, like the main character, is an Asian American whose mother was murdered in the United States. She, like the main character, wonders at the price of the American dream and the immigrants who, like Young's own family, sacrifice so much to make it come true. Welcome to the show, Doris. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Sherry. So tell us what your film is about. Uh, my film is called Motherland, and it's about a, a young woman who uh, comes back to the Bay Area, to San Francisco, um, because of the death of her mother. And then she slowly f- kind of figures out uh, what happened to her mother um, and what happened to uh, uh, why she died, and uh, it may implicate uh, certain family members, and it's kind of like a film noir, murder and, mystery type film. And it's also kind of a personal film, isn't it? I mean, your own mother was murdered. Was it here in San Francisco? Uh, it was in Bay Area, in, in Hillsboro, in two thousand four. Uh, yes, correct. So, is it was it hard for you to be able to divest from that personal story and and make a a film noir? I mean, definitely it was very, very close to me, um, and I actually uh, wrote the movie and made the movie uh, because of what happened to my mother. I felt inspired to do so, and I felt I had to do it, in fact. Um, so, yeah, on the one hand, you know, it was a plus that it gave me the inspiration, gave me the, the drive to do it. On the other hand, uh, artistically, perhaps I was a bit close to the story itself, um, but uh, it is what it is, and uh, I hope people can still see the difference. Some reviewers have stated that your film, as inescapable as its plot is from parts of the story of your own life, um, was hesitant to let the world into the details of a young woman's grieving process. Do you think that you might have resisted showing and telling more about the inner turmoil of the loss of a mother to murder? It's possible. I mean, like I said before, I was very close to the uh, subject matter. Um, but I actually tried to structure the movie as part of the grieving process. I mean, literally, uh, the film was written um, in like acts, but acts like the five stages of grieving. 
um, and some of them I kind of made it myself. Um, so in that way, perhaps people thought it was a bit um, slow, uh, because in the grieving process, there's a lot of stages that are really kind of like apathy, helplessness, and there's not much going on there. So, You had been living abroad when, when you heard the news? Yes, yes. So you hadn't seen her very regularly, regularly for uh, several years? Not at all. Maybe off and on three times a year or so. Are you uh, American? Were you born here? I was born in the U.S., and uh, I, but I grew up in Hong Kong until I was about seven, and I came back to the U.S., so what do you consider yourself if someone asks you, where where are you from? I say I'm American. And I get it a lot because I live in Europe now. So, And uh, they're kind of like, oh, you don't look American. you know. But, well, Americans are made up of many different pe- kinds of people, ethnicities. So, and, and your story, your film, isn't just the personal story reflected on, onto the screen, um, but it's, it's about the largest story of immigration um, and that sort of proverbial American dream. What do you believe the American dream is? There's many levels of it, you know, and it speaks to the deepest desires of uh, immigrants. And uh, but on the, the most superficial level, I believe it's material success. Is is there any other element to it, or is the American dream straight and simple success, ca- material um, success? No, definitely not just uh, material success, but I think freedom, freedom from whatever... Uh, it is. It could be from poverty. Uh, therefore, material success is the opposite. It could be from uh, religious or political persecution. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess it would be freedom, actually. And your film rather questions the whole idea of the American dream. What are you trying to say in the film? I don't think it question. Well, yes, it questions. But I I think of it more like I'm trying to expose. Um, the other side. Everything has two sides, you know, the dark side and the light side, the good and the bad. And uh, I think what I'm trying to do is uh, show the darker side of the American dream because we hear and we see so many films and, you know, uplifting stories of uh, people who've achieved the American dream. You have grags to riches stories and and uh, kind of things that we tell people coming here, like, you know, if you put your nose to, you know, whatever, to the uh, to the floor and uh, work hard, and uh, then you'll, you too can achieve the American dream. So I also uh, believe that there are other stories um, when what happens if you don't make it? Is there a price to pay? Are there consequences to achieving the American dream? And we don't hear about those stories that often. So Why don't we hear about mm-hmm. those stories so often? I think they're downer, and uh, people... Maybe it's an American thing that we don't want to hear, you know, we don't want to be a Debbie Downer. We want to hear the positive, uplifting stories because we think that will help us achieve our goals. But I believe um, you should listen to both sides of the story and then you can be better informed. Do you think that part of the reason is that um, minority filmmakers like yourself, minority being a woman and minority being an Asian American, aren't able to break into Hollywood as easily as they could or should in order to tell these stories from that perspective? Um, I think certainly there's a stereotype um, as a minority, as a female director, as a minority director. People want to kind of put you in a box, you know, like, oh, you should tell these kind of stories, you know, or maybe like the uplifting immigrant experience story. And uh, sometimes we kind of, you know, in order to get a foot into the business or what or whatnot, we kind of okay, I'll 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 play this role if I'm an actor, or I'll tell this story, I'll write this script, but uh, we're not being truth truthful to ourselves, I believe. So. 
you live in Europe right now and you've lived there for, for many years. Why did you leave the United States and, and, and why haven't you come back? Well, I left originally because my partner was uh, Dutch and, uh, and she invited me to go to Holland and uh, that's the initial impetus for me leaving. And once I got there, I really loved living there and I realized, um, actually I was even more American being outside of America than being here. I could see things so much more clearly and I actually wrote this script uh, mostly outside and I could just see the differences so much more clearly and why haven't I gone back I think it was because I could see those differences so clearly let's listen to uh, a, a clip from your film it's, it's from the beginning of the film at San Francisco International Airport welcome to San Francisco International Airport we are currently at Homeland Security Threat Level Orange your assistance is requested in enhancing airport security by maintaining possession of your bags at all times. It says here that your last entry in the country was seven years ago. Yes, sir. Where have you been living? Mexico. And what brings you home? My mother's death. So th that scene in particular with the border control agents at San Francisco International Airport, it, it really sort of hits home for a lot of people. I mean, you did film it in the airport. How did you get mm -hmm. that permission? Um, well, we, uh, one of the producers, uh, we asked for permission, we asked for a permit, and we didn't think we were going to get it, uh, but we asked anyways. Um, and uh, surprisingly, they gave it to us. Um, and so that's how we were able to film at the airport. That wasn't a real agent that you used. No, was that it? was an actor. But yeah. what's interesting is that he's Asian American, the mm -hmm. agent, and and a lot of the agents in in that particular airport are, mm -hmm. and and yet he somehow in that scene makes you feel foreign. Mm -hmm. What were you trying to achieve with that with that scene? I mean, we've all been at the airport and. Uh, you know, gone through customs and border control coming back. And you always feel kind of out of it, I think, when you come back and you're like, oh, where am I? You know, oh, the, oh, I'm home. And then sometimes, you know, you get a really nice one and they'll say, welcome home. So, and especially if you've been um, away for a while, either for vacation or if you lived abroad or whatnot. So I really wanted to convey that sense of foreignness. And, uh, but then the fact that this is your home once you cross the border. What does home mean? You've called your film Motherland, and yet your mother wasn't from this land, and, and you're sort of not here anymore. What, mm -hmm. what is home? What is a motherland, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, this, this is something, uh, a question that I deal often with in my films. Uh, what is home? What is identity? What, what comprises a person's identity and what, where they come from? you know, what their nationality or what this has on their passport. And I believe it's an amalgam of many things. For me, home is, I mean, to be very cliche, home is where your heart is. It's where you feel home is. And for some people, it's not just one place. It's uh, a couple places or a few places. Yeah, home can mean a group of friends. You feel that's your home is uh, that group of friends, not particularly a place. It could be just a circumstance. In this post-9-11 era, in this with us or with, against us era that, that is perhaps maybe receding a little bit in, under the new presidency, do you think that there's 
a real requirement that people have only one home, that they have only one motherland, that they only be American? That's an interesting question because there are countries that allow dual nationality, and the U.S. allows dual nationality with certain countries and not with other countries. So it's really an interesting question because why don't you allow dual nationality? And one of, sometimes one of the arguments is that in case your country goes to war with my country, that you don't know where your, your loyalties lie. You know, But if you take another way of looking at it, the more nationalities you have, the more a world citizen you are. You know, so it depends how you look at it. It's either it's you, either against us or for us mentality, like you said, or thinking in a more worldly, more international sense that we're all world citizens, not just from one country. Is it okay mm. to be a world citizen in America, though, or or do you have to just be American, an American? I think citizen? there's different schools of thoughts. I think some people think that we should be more world citizens, and some others think think that we should be more local. That uh, this is our land, and we should protect our land and build fences and borders. And uh, yeah, I think there are diff- definitely different schools of thoughts. And for me, I'm I'm all for being a world citizen. I believe less borders increases um, communication. Wonderful. Doris, thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing your thoughts on your new film, Motherland. Thanks for having me. Director Doris Young's first feature film is Motherland. It opens Friday, August 26th in San Francisco at the Four Star Theater. You're listening to New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. In the hills outside of La Honda, California, there's an alternative juvenile probation program run by the city of San Francisco. It's called Log Cabin Ranch, and the mission is to keep young men out of the more punitive detention programs by incarcerating them in a rural setting and providing them with a six- to nine-month program of counseling, education, and vocational training. For a series we're calling Listen In at the Log Cabin Ranch, we gave some of the young men microphones and asked them to take us into their lives. Today, we introduce Franklin. Alright, my name is Franklin. Uh, today is the May six, like about five thirty, five fifteen. I don't know. Uh, we went bowling, and then I saw a few females trying to talk to him, and I felt like I was just back. Like I felt like I was free again. You feel me? I didn't. The thought that I was in jail didn't really run through my mind, so I just totally forgot I was in jail. I just started talking to him. It felt good, though, because you feel me? I haven't talked to a girl for a while because I've been down up here for, like, about six, seven months already. So I just felt good about it, like, damn. They asked me, like, where your guys come from. I told them I'm on a little private school, so they won't think I'm I'm a troublemaker or none of that. So I tell them right now I'm in a little private school. We're just having a little field trip out here trying to see how y'all be doing it out here in Redwood City. Yeah, I felt like I was free. Like, I ain't even gonna lie. I felt free for us. I had a phone call Sunday, last Sunday. And I talked to my sister, and she was like, oh, yeah, you going, you, you coming to my uh, graduation? I'm like, probably. I don't know. 
And then she was like, but my grandmother's coming. I just said like, oh, yeah. So I told the director of the ranch about getting a home pad to go see my grandmother. He like, he like, where's she coming from? Like she gonna come from her homeland, El Salvador. Last time she came, she she didn't get to see me because I was in jail. So I just pushed her hard line and I'm like, is it possible if I could get a home pad? She said, yeah. I haven't been out for like about 11 months. I just want to go back out, go back to reality, and see how it feels. Like, I know it's going to feel different, but I just want to go back. Me and my sister, we started school the same year. And then I, we told each other, like, like we're going to graduate. But then I messed up, got arrested, came up here and all that. I just want to see her go on the stage, like, and get a high school diploma. That's all. Because when I go see her, like, like my mom, she going to look at me like, that should be you right now. I don't care. I just want to go see her. Like, I don't, I don't really care if I get it or not. I'm getting my GED because I was, my credits was looking bad. Because I was going to school, but I was not doing anything. I just sit there and play around. Like, my plan right now is getting my GED, going back home, get off probation, seal my record, and then join the military. You got to meet all the requirements to be able to get off probation and seal your record. So if I do good in 30 days, they're going to take me off ankle monitor. Then they're going to let me run around for like about two, three months. It depends how I'm doing. And then they're going to let me off probation. And then I'm going to be on my own. Like That's why I plan on just staying out the way. Like I don't know, probably go to Oakland or Sacramento with my aunties. And the stage is away from the city. Like So I won't be like getting myself into no trouble. Listen in at the Log Cabin Ranch was produced for New America Now by Lisa Morehouse with support from Will Roy and The Beat Within. The program was funded by the Zellerback Family Foundation and the City of San Francisco Probation Department. This is New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Friend us on Facebook. Just search for New America Now Radio. He's a stand-up comedian and a radio personality, but D.L. Hewley is so much more. His political news program on CNN, D.L. Hewley Breaks the News, established him as a premier political commentator and keen observer of American government. And his in-your-face, ironic, yet hilarious comedy has kept him in the news even after the show ended. He'll be performing at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco this weekend, and he joins us today to discuss the politics of comedy. D.L., welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So who is the real D.L. Hewley? No, that's, that's, that, that depends on who you're talking to, I guess. Some people think he's a some people think he's a father, some people think he's a husband, some people think he's a comic, some people think he's an idiot. It just that would depend on the company we're keeping. DL, I have to remind you, you're you're on public radio. So Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> See, you, that's why the first mark, the first one was so appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you a religious man, DL? I I certainly believe in God. I just didn't think that most people who use his name are full of you know, are full of a, of a, you know the words. 
I mean, if you look at religion, just like in the past a couple of years, between Warren Jeff, Bishop uh, Eddie Long in Atlanta, and um, Catholic priest, Sunday's a pretty scary day for the kids. <laughs> Um, you you've been uh, you've been known to criticize uh, President Bush on on his Christian faith. Um, you you said that uh, he was being very unchristian, unchristlike when he um, didn't really help out much in New Orleans when Katrina well, uh, happened. I think that you could I could think that you could just uh, you know kind of extrapolate out, that out to the country. Now we're a country that cares more about wealth and military power than we do about human beings, and I think that when you look at the situation where we're more concerned about capitalism and the free market than we are, whether our children are educated and whether people eat and whether people can go to the doctor. The problem is that we, we would rather make money off something than give it away. And I think that that's, uh, that's by very definition uh, uh, under Christ's life. Would you say that you're in the minority when you say something like that? Or, or do you I, think I, that I, most well, Americans well, think like that? I think like that you? most people have the kind of... Uh, the kind of veneer of, of Christianity, I think that it is it is a ritual, and I think that we've all grown up with it. And so I think that it, people feel uncomfortable saying things out loud that they that they probably and they know to be true. But I, I you know, when I'm in a minority or not, I think uh, that's past my uh, my realm of knowledge. Is it is it dangerous to speak your mind in the post 9/11 America? I think it's dangerous to speak your mind anytime. I think that throughout history, anybody who's ever <laughs> spoke their mind ended up dead. <laughs> so I don't I think that it's dangerous in that people are so ill equipped to handle the truth. Things that we know are so obviously true. Um just look at like if you look at what's happening now in the political uh, arena, you have a, a presidential candidate right now who last year uh openly said that uh, Texas uh, would consider seceding from the union. Now you look at the last Time that this country, every time this country has had this kind of acrimony, it's always been about race. The first civil war, the civil war is about race. The civil rights movement was about race. This is about race. There are so many people who are patently uncomfortable with a black man being in charge that it, 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 it leads to a lot of animus. And so I think that when I look at things like that, it's just, you know, whether it's, you know, safe or not in the post 9 11 era, it's just kind of just something so obvious everybody knows to be true. And I think that anybody that doesn't really acknowledge it is taking ahead in a sense. You were referring to comments made by presidential Republican presidential candidate Rick Perry. Right. Um, what do you think of the Republican Party today? I think that they are, I think that they're some good men. I think that, you know, I like Ron Paul. I think he's a bright, older man, but I think he's so pragmatic that the uh, the, the right uh, that at now is, is, is sick of any time Michelle Bachman can be a, a candidate for a nationally held office, like a senator or president. I think that that says a lot about how rabid and, you know, whether you believe in her, you know, ideological viewpoint or not, she's just silly and trite. And I think it makes us look silly and trite. Look at the argument we had over the debt silly. Look, look, here's the argument. I know that I haven't paid you the money that I owed you, but if you don't give me more money, I won't be able to pay you the money I owed you. Now, this had been, you know, had been the way that this country's done business for decades. Now, all of a sudden, it, there's a problem. People who don't understand that running for office and a rabble-rousing is certainly different than governing a country are are silly and short-sighted, and it's the reason why this country, I think, is in the shape of it. Again, are you in the min- minority? Is D.L. Hewley sort of spouting crazy talk, or, or do you well, think most Americans would agree with you? I, you know, most Americans at one point believed that slavery was okay, so I don't mind necessarily being in the minority. I, I do mind 
that I say what I say clearly. And I never forget that my gig is to be an entertainer, but my gig more than anything else is just to say what I see and kind of, you know, let people... I, I, I'm the camera. Whatever pictures people see, it's kind of they have to own, they have to be their own narrative. Well, you uh, you were also a journalist at one point when CNN gave you that uh, that sort of comedic news show, right. um, which aired from October '08 till March 2009. D. L. Hewley breaks the news, and during that show, you got uh, White House press secretary Ari Fleischer to admit that the Bush administration was wrong to claim that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass dis- destruction in the lead up to the Iraq War. You, you well, got some... you know, I, I think it's just more a question of talking to somebody. He, uh, I was a human guy. I also got Michael Steele to say that Rush Limbaugh was just an entertainer, which, as opposed to the de facto leader of the Republican Party. But I think I just dig having conversations when I'm on Bill Maher's show or when I'm on CNN or any other people. There are a lot of people who have a great deal of personal affinity for, but that are just, I see things differently. Now, I'm not one of these cats who say that America is stupid or that they're wrong or that I'm right because or because that would mean that I had all the answers and I certainly don't. I think that anytime somebody has a principled, reasoned argument and they can, you know, and they have not even, I don't want to say legitimate because that, that puts too much of onus on me, but I think that they have well-reasoned, uh, you know, ideas about what what they feel and how, why they feel this way, then I, 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 obviously then I'm not entitled to tell them that they're wrong. Do you think that Americans should be angrier than they are right now, or do you think they're just being I, I angry? I think you have their... a great... I think that this president should be angrier than he is right now. <laughs> it's funny because <laughs> he's two things. He's the only black man I know that's working right now. <laughs> you're working, D.L., uh, well, you're working. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you messing the joke up. But he's the only, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's one of the only black men I know that are working right now. And the other thing he is, one of the only people in this country who aren't angry. The right is angry because they feel like this country is going to hell in a handbasket. And the left is angry because they feel like uh, uh, this country is going to hell in a handbasket. The only one who seems to have be even killed is him. Maybe he's just no no drama Obama and he's holding it back and nobody sees that he's angry, you know, in the Oval Office, you know. Well, see, the problem is that I think that when he was running for office, it served him well, like not being emotional and not being kind of evocative. I think that governing the country is a problem because, like, if you were in a relationship with somebody, and in that relationship they never they never displayed any emotion. You were happy. They were if you were hurt or you were happy. They didn't seem to connect with you. They didn't seem to have any. They didn't display any emotion. You would assume that that person didn't care, and you would probably start acting out. And I think that's that's kind of typical of you know when women feel like you're not you you don't care they start doing things to act out and this country is just a big woman so, it's kind of <laughs> acts out when they ain't getting attention and i think that that hurts him so about so president obama is that ex-girlfriend of yours that just wasn't you know reacting to your jokes i mean like... <laughs> that, that could kind of be you know i think that people want to know that you are connected and and the problem is that there are very there are rudimentary ways where you know He's like the kind of guy you go to a doctor and you say, I have a headache, and he goes, me too. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, that doesn't get it, but okay. But that's his gig. That's that's the Obama that people elected. They they almost want him to not have any emotions, to do to just be a sort of robot. You well, think I he needs that, a change? I think that that was the gig initially because I think that the idea was, I think we wanted, like, the Republican right was afraid they were going to get an angry black man. But I think it's fair to say that the left wouldn't have minded an angry black man. Do you think Pre- President Obama will be reelected? 
I think that the best thing that this president has going for him, despite all that's going wrong with the economy and the jobless rate uh, and, and just how the lack of confidence that Americans feel, is the fact that the uh, field of candidates in the Republican just like the Republicans would have took over the Senate if not for crazy people like Sharon Angle in, in, in uh, Nevada and Christine O'Donnell in Connecticut. So I think that they will, as always, move the conversation so far to the right that any sane person would have a problem voting for them. What is sane? I think sanity is acting like an adult. It's like, I may not, like, even with the debt ceiling argument, I, I know that there may be some things wrong, but I know in the end I have to pay my house note or I'll be outside. It is insane to spit in the face of logic and to, know, and to not do what you know you have to do as an adult. There are things, and, 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 and just even our idea of ourselves, like Japan and Germany at one point, they wanted to be the baddest dudes on the planet. They got ass whoopings, and now, even though they're not military powers, they're still economic and intellectual powers. So the, the idea of evolving and becoming something, America kind of is like the big dude in the room who was just always able to kick everybody's ass, and all of a sudden that skill set don't work no more. <laughs> <laughs> what? Why doesn't it work? Now he's a drunk dude at the party who every minute, ah, kick everybody's ass, but that's not, that's not the skill set that works anymore. Well, well it, it, in terms of that skill set, I mean, you... President Bush was quite good at it. Apparently, he was he, he was, was no, he, he was, was the cowboy in town. He really was. He was good at stuff. Just like what happened with Libya. Libya uh, was a conflict that, much like you know, uh, kind of a de facto uh, Iraq, where we had a problem with the dictator, we wanted him deposed. In in six months, no loss of life. Uh, he's gone, and uh, the ultimate objective was accomplished. We're still in Iraq. Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, uh, our two longest-running wars with no end in sight. So I think he was great at starting things. He was just lousy at finishing. DL, has comedy changed since Barack Obama became president? Uh, I think that it had, and now I think that the greatest components, I think, uh, 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 that uh, comedy has is the ability to kind of mirror what's going on uh, with society. And one of the things that I think is very palpable is fear and irony. Is uh, we're afraid. Uh, there's just a palpable sense of fear, and there are so many things that are ironic uh, that, that just happen kind of on a daily basis. Like, we're a nation now that we're reality shows. We're so devoid of life that we rush home to watch other people live. Like, the biggest stars now are reality stars who are mirroring lives that people want. They're not even living those lives. They're scripted lives. No, that's lives. what I'm saying. So it's, it's <laughs> kind of a silly thing. DL, thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you in San Francisco at Cobb's thank Comedy Club this weekend. DL Hewley will be performing at the Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco this weekend. Thanks for listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. Inter-ethnic, international, and intergenerational news for the new America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW Studios in San Francisco by New America Media. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shireen Sadegi.